Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Palm Sunday in the name of our Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ. Greetings. Today we are those who cry Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and we willingly raise our hands and bow our knees to him as our King. Amen? Amen. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of him as the waters cover the sea, so will the earth be filled with the knowledge of him. Amen? Amen. From sea to shining sea, God will be worshipped, adored, and he will rule the world with equity. Hail to the king! Hail to the king! In Psalm uh, Psalm 72, we, we hear the word of the Lord from David. Many times it... Uh, There is a description of the psalm preceding it, but in this one there's one that comes after it. Psalm 72 says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, the poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people, and he shall save the children of the needy, and he shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. In his days shall righteousness flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow down before him and his enemies shall lick his dust." The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he cries. The poor that has no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence. And precious shall be their blood in the sight of the Lord. And he shall live and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. Therefore shall a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains, the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever, and his name shall continue as long as the sun. And as men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That kind of puts a final stamp on things when someone declares who the king of the earth is. And he will be worshipped and be prayed. And I love how David ends it. He said, the prayers of David are ended. That's part of the song. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord God, may that be our final prayer. Lord, may it be the prayer that we end all of our thoughts with. Lord, that you would be king over all the earth. Lord, that you would make all things right that are wrong. That you would straighten everything that is crooked, Lord. Lord, we believe that the day is coming, Lord, when... Those things which are done in secret will be shout out loud when those things that are uneven will be straightened, Lord. We pray today as we gather in your, pre in your presence, Lord, that you would give us your patience and your mercy, Lord. We see the earth the way it is, and we would love to see all of your foes just demolished and crushed immediately. But in your providence, you have given more mercy to the earth. And I pray, Lord, that as your mercies are new for us every morning, that we would be a merciful people as well, that we would wait on your timing to do your will. Lord, we pray today as we come into your presence that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would speak to us, that you would feed us from heaven, and that we would be different when we left this place. In Christ's name, all of God's people said amen. Amen. standing for a little bit more as I read for you my text from the book of Psalms chapter 8 starting in verse 4. This is my third part of Psalm 8 and my sermon today is called Dominion. Everybody say Dominion. Dominion. Psalm 8 starting in verse 4 says this, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Let us pray. Lord, we pray today, most of all, that you would speak to us. Lord, we are not merely interested in learning facts or becoming more educated in our religion, Lord, but we want to hear from our master. We want to hear from our Lord. Lord, we are the subjects and you are our king. Lord, speak to us and lead us in the right path. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. Maybe may be seated. Today on Palm Sunday, appropriately, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, today we're going to talk about dominion. Jesus is right now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the rightful King of Heaven and Earth. He came to Earth to establish His kingdom. Jesus is taking dominion over the Earth. How many of you believe that Jesus is taking dominion over the Earth? I believe He is. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, if you remember what he told them to pray, 
you will see that it begins with a subject and it ends with a subject. Thy kingdom come, right? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Everybody say on earth. As it is in heaven, this is the essence of the message of Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Adam was given the entire world and he brought sin and death into it. God is making this right. Jesus and those who follow him are taking the whole earth, conquering sin and death for the Father of glory, for the kingdom that shall never pass away. Can we say, thanks be to God. Dominion simply means to rule or to govern. But for us, it will be more specific because we're going to talk about the doctrine of dominion as it is shown in the scriptures. We will talk about God's stated purpose for man when he was created. How this purpose was marred by sin and how God has and is restoring the world and restoring mankind to his purpose in Christ. This purpose is world dominion. Here in Psalm 8, our text, part of the ongoing journey through the Psalms, David asked the question, what is man? Now the question is rhetorical. I don't really believe that he's wanting to answer the question, but I'm going to answer the question because he answers the question in the Psalm itself. What is man? He asks the question by way of comparison of the great God. So when he says, what is man? He's simply saying that compared to the great God of heaven, man is nothing. He's insignificant. He's minuscule. He's in the painting. He's not the artist, right? Imagine if someone were to know a great artist and a great creator of beautiful artwork and some little figure in one of his paintings somewhere is like, what am I? I'm just... The oil on a piece of canvas, but it's the master who holds the brush. What is man? David is saying, compared to the great God of heaven, man is nothing. But then, after he declares man's nothingness, he praises God for what he has done for man and what he has given him, what him to do and to rule in the place he put him in creation. It's kind of like being in a painting and imagine... If you found yourself the picture of the painting and you were a king sitting on a throne and you said, what is this? What, you know, who am I? What is, what is going on here? The master has put me and painted me in this and put all the world at my feet and I'm the king. This is such a strange thing if, you, if a person, if a figure in a painting can talk. We will look at who we are and what we are here on earth for. This is at the very core of everything, and it should be at the very core of all of our lives. People everywhere, even unbelievers, are asking them this same question all the time. Who am I? What am I here for? I mean, you guys meet people that do this? They're, they're, who, who am I, right? Have you asked yourself that question lately? Who am I, and what was I made for? What is my purpose? I sure hope that you are asking that today. Because I think you're going to get an answer right from the Word of God that may change your life. You see, the questions can be answered in the biblical doctrine of dominion. When dealing with the core issues of Scripture, though, things at the very center of God's revelation of man, you must always start at the beginning of this discussion 
in the Bible, and God will, as time goes on, expand his revelation. You'll see it in, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start in Genesis 1, but then God tells us more about it in Genesis 2, and he tells us more about it in Genesis 3. It expands, expands all the way through the scriptures to the book of Revelation. So if you were really lining up for a five-hour Bible study, I could teach you the entire doctrine of dominion through the Bible. You guys ready for that? We're not going to do that today, but it would be, you couldn't do it in five hours if you really wanted to teach it all. But we'll start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where uh, we're in the beautiful creation scene, right? God had said, let there be light, and there was light, right? And he starts creating thing on day one, and day two, and day three, and day four, and day five, everything. Everything God speaks is coming into being, and he gets to... Day six in Genesis 1:26, and God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion." Let me say, "Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over every creeping thing, and over every thing that creepeth upon the earth." So God created man in His own image, in the image of God created He him. Male and female created He them and God blessed them and said unto them be fruitful multiply replenish the earth and subdue it everybody say subdue it and have dominion over it everybody say and have dominion over it have dominion over what the fish of the sea the fowl of the air every living thing that moves upon the earth this passage is the first biblical passage in the word of God to mention dominion and we see it used twice in two verses in the very first verses written about man, we can see two very important things about him that God reveals to us. We know they must be important. If God only tells us, Andrea, two things about man, do you think those two things might be important? He could have told us what his hair color was. He could have told us how tall he was. He could have told us if he made him with a belly button or without a belly button. He could have told us what color his skin was or, or how strong he was or if he was handsome. He doesn't say anything about that. It tells two things about this man. He's made in the image of God, and he was made to have dominion. They're the only two things it tells us. God rules the universe, and he made man to be like him. It's kind of interesting to me how these two things are linked together. We have man is made in the image of God, and he was given dominion. So in his work, he is being like who? Who rules? Everybody say, God rules. And so he made man to do what? To He made man to rule. So even in the image of God, we see that there is work implicated in that because God works. So what was Adam made to rule? It says that he was made to rule the animals, the bird, the fish, the reptiles, everything in the air, everything in land. And it's interesting, and I mentioned this last week, even things that are in the deepest part of the ocean. That's an amazing thing to me. Obviously, man has not realized his potential. Two verses later, man is given a command by God to do a very few specific things. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with mankind, and to subdue the earth. Basically, God is explaining to him what he means for man to do. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, the sea, the fowl, the air, every living thing. Genesis 2, though gives us a more detailed account of the same thing. In the book of Genesis and other Hebrew works, uh, the story will be told in an outline form, a quick form, and then the next chapter will retell the exact same story. That's what's happening in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 said God made man. He made him in his image and he made him to have dominion. 
Chapter 2 tells the story again, but gives us a little bit more. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, These are the generations of heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field grew, and the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the ground. And there was not a man to till the ground. Derek, I think this is funny. God creates all the world, light, planets, everything. And the only thing God has to say about it is there wasn't a man there. And he mentions what the man is for. There wasn't a man for me to talk to. No. There wasn't a man for me to hang out with. No. There wasn't a man to show the world what I'm like. No. There wasn't a man to till the ground. Folks, when you read something like this, you, you should squint your eyebrows up. I mean, there's a million things that could be said here. But God said, I made it all. But there wasn't a man to do any work. Kind of sounds like work may be taking an important role. What do you think, Steve? But they went up a mist of the garden and watered the whole face of the earth. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. So there's no one to, no one to till the ground. And so God takes from the ground and he makes man. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. Man was made from the ground. He was made from the earth and he would need to till it. Work needed to be done before man existed and he was made from the ground that he would work in. After he was made, he would be given work to do, and it would be having to do with the ground. I mean, people that like to farm and people that want to be connected to the earth, they really have a good argument here. Work must be very important. In fact, we learn from the creation story that it is yet another way that man is made in the image of God. God works. Everybody say, God works. In fact, not only God, does God work, but God works, and then God does what? When he's done working, he, he rests. And you go, that's silly. Oh, but God is helping us to understand that the reason that we work and the reason we rest is because he works and he rests. That's the way it is. We're made in his image. We don't know what it means for God to rest. It's kind of hard to imagine. You know what it's like, right? When you're welding and working and bending and you're like, oh, I'm done. You know what that's like, but you know God's not like that. So we don't really understand it exactly. But we know that God works and we do know what that's like. And we know that we're supposed to work too. In fact, God does work before man does. In verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden. I think it's amazing. He speaks everything into existence, Jeff. He speaks it into existence, but then it says God planted a garden. He didn't speak the garden into existence. He planted the garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Kind of like we do with our kids. We work, and they watch us work so that we can do what? He puts us there. He put it there. It's like, did you see what I made? I really think that what God did is he made a garden because he said, you see this? This is what you are getting ready to do to the whole world. And he's looking around and he's looking at the trees and the flowers, the plants and the brooks. And he's like, wow, this is amazing. And God is saying, you see this garden, this is to show you what you're going to make the whole world like. Wouldn't it have been amazing if the whole world had been made into a garden? So out of the ground, God made the Lord to grow every tree and plant that's pleasant sight for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the, in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. This was his purpose. God started off everything with work. He didn't just create a guy and say, go around and smell the flowers and uh, you know, uh, catch butterflies. 
He gave him work. God gave man the animals and the plants to exercise dominion over. Man would be like God in that he would work and he would rule. This is what defines man and makes him like God. Not to get derailed here, but I think it's worth noting that God made man and gave him a purpose. He was the ruler and the worker before God gave him a woman. Now, this is not degrading to women. In fact, it's just elevating work. Man was made to work, and he was made to rule. He cannot do work that God gives him, though, without what? Without a woman. But what came first? Work. She was his helpmeet. Helpmeet to do what? To work. What was she going to help him do? Everything God told him to do, he couldn't do it without her. So God gave man a job to do that he could not do without some help. And so he made him help so he could work. He could not multiply and fill the earth without a woman. This would be impossible. A man without a purpose is no blessing to a woman. When she becomes his purpose, they both lose. A man who cannot rule is less than a man. He was not made to be ruled, but to rule. There's a lot in this, and this is not what my sermon is. I don't want to derail you too much here. But a love relationship is not an end in itself. Love without the purpose of God in your life is something that will fizzle out, and it will fade, and it will actually become bitterness. Our purpose is not to be in love. It is to work obeying God's mandates for our lives. Now, we all know what happened when Adam put Eve before God and before his work. What happened? Bad things happened, right? Adam and Eve both lost their innocence and they lost so much more. Man was not made for the woman. She was made to help him do what God had given him to do. God's work came first. Now, this is not one of these sermons where I talk about dragging your wife around by her hair and, and telling her what to do and treating her bad. This is trying to explain to us man's purpose. Man's purpose is not to write poems and to be in love. His purpose is to serve God. And he gets the byproduct of love and beautiful relationships and all that. In the work that we do. It is what, how you build the world. You build the world by working together to do what God has called us to do. So men, when the first question you should ask yourselves when looking for someone to join you in marriage is, can she help me do the work that God has called me to do? There's some people thinking about that here. There's some other people thinking in their lives about uh, what's going on in their lives. And they're thinking, what is it that I, uh, what is it that I need? And so what we want to ask ourselves is, can we work together doing what can? And another question is, is can I rule her? Can we work together? I mean, I can tell you, I didn't think about that when I married Mrs. Robinette. I didn't think about that at all. Like, can I rule this woman, you know? Had I, I, well, I, well, at that time, I thought I could. And of course, I was right. But these are good questions. Why are they good questions to ask? They're good questions to ask because it's what we're supposed to do. And if you marry someone who can't work with you and who you can't rule, you're going to be what? You're going to be miserable and they're going to be miserable too. Our society and the church is so polluted, I almost think that I need to duck when I say things like this. But righteousness and the rightness according to God's word of this statement cannot be disputed. Women, the first thing you should ask yourself considering uniting your life with a man's life is what is this man doing? 
Can I help him do what God has called him to do? Will he be able to rule me? Will I be able to follow him? That's a good question to ask. That's a good thing to wonder and say, hey, you know, yeah, I can do that. Or no, I can't. At the center of Christian life, we should be asking ourselves in every area of our lives, how is what I am doing right now fulfilling what God has set for my life's purpose? Now remember, work is not a curse. Everybody say, work is not a curse. Adam's work, taking dominion over all living creatures, plants and animals, it was cursed, but it wasn't cursed from the beginning. Work, man's purpose on earth, was the first thing that he was given. And so when God dealt with man, he cursed the work that he had given him to do. He was teaching him something. Now remember, when man went wrong, all of the curses were work-oriented. Say, the curses were work-oriented. Did you, did you notice this? The very thing that God gave Adam to do, God made it harder by making the land rebel against him. wonder what he was teaching uh, man, Luke. He was teaching man just in the same sense that as God, you're not to rebel against me. I'm supposed to rule over you. I gave you something to rule and subdue. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it rebel against you. So here you are, you were supposed to turn the world into a garden and subdue it and take it for the, for the beauty and the glory of God and to till it and plant the garden like the one I made for you. So here's the curse. It's going to grow thorns and it's going to grow thistles and it's going to be difficult for you and it's going to be hard and you're going to sweat to get this work done. And so what does he do? Tim, what's he do to Eve? What's the one thing Eve can do that Adam cannot do? What's her work? She's, she's equipped for this in a way that Adam is not and he cannot do it. It is the work of helping him fill the earth through what? Through childbirth. So what does God curse? That process. He said this is going to be painful. This is going to be difficult. You're going to go, this, you know, in childbirth you're going, to, you're going to have a great deal of pain. I was talking to Andrea about this. Could you imagine a world without sin where having babies wasn't scary and painful and horrible, but it was just great? I think that's something that was a beautiful part or could have been a beautiful part of the world that the world never was able to realize. Her work was cursed too. Her work was to help her husband and she was cursed not to want to do her own thing and and that was the next thing that was cursed what what did god say about her she was going to what she was going to rebel against her husband too she was going to have the propensity to want to rule him but that was not the place death would make it harder to fill the earth would it not i never thought about this about death until i was writing this down andy death would make it hard to fill the earth wouldn't it god calls you to fill the earth it's like like hey fill this hole Full of water, but I'm going to be paling, taking it out with pails as you're filling it up. Fill the earth, and death would make it harder. God was showing us and still showing every man and woman today what it is like when the thing that we are given to rule rebels against us. You would think we'd learn this a thousand times when we see this in our own work as we're, we try to raise our children and they rebel. As we try to grow a garden and it rebels. As our bodies rebel and life itself rebels and all these remind us that we should be ruled by God 
Man could not do the work he was given to do without woman. In fact, it was totally impossible. And I believe giving man before he gave him Eve and giving him work before he gave her meat was God's way of setting our priorities in order. Now, I'm not saying we should put our wives in second place after our work. What I'm saying, what might be, is that when we don't put the work that God has given us in the right place, the purpose of our existence, that very thing first, that I believe we cannot please God and we cannot find joy. No person can come before God or the callings he puts on our lives. I love my wife, and sometimes I think maybe too much, but I can love her too much. I can. I didn't think I, I didn't used to think, Jason, that I could love my wife too much, but I can. I can put her before what God has called me to do and to be, and in the end, she'll regret it, and I will too. It'll be like Adam and Eve, they both lost. Now, I'm a man of God. I'm made to speak God's word to his people, a shepherd to watch the flock. This is who I am. And what I must do. And my wife should be helping me do this work. Working together is the calling, is at the center of our identity. That's who we are. Mark and Andrea, who are we? What are we doing? If you followed us around with a recorder, if you followed us around, there might be some things that bother you. But one thing that wouldn't bother you is that we don't do anything. Is that we're not talking about you. And we're not trying to make ways for your life to be different. And our church to be better. And our children to be discipled. That's pretty much all we do. That's all. In fact, I don't think we do much anything else. And I think that's what we should be doing. That's why we're pretty happy people. Now, how has God called you to take dominion? And what has God given you to do? This is a good question to ask. How... Has God called you, Mr. Husband? And how are these questions being answered? Or how are they being lived out, lived out in your life? Are you helping or hindering wife? What God has called your husband to do? Dominion is a constant theme throughout the Bible. And the importance cannot be overemphasized in the story of redemption. Redemption is taking the world back that Adam lost. And it should be at the center of our lives no matter how we do it. Now, if you think I've camped out a little bit too long here on dominion, the work that God's given man to do to redeem men and women, then I'm going to quickly take you through a whole lot of the Bible. You guys ready? You guys ready to do this? Just sometimes I think maybe people need to understand I'm not making up some topic that I've picked up out of nowhere. This, this is a central theme that the deal is, and the reason why I need to talk about it is because we have not made it a central theme of our lives, but it is a central theme of God's word. If you remember what happened to Noah when God decided he was going to destroy the world, he looked for a man, he made the ark, right? Saved him. When he gets out of the ark, what's the first thing he says to him? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Replenish the earth. He even brings dominion out in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 9. And the fear of you that is, shall be the dread shall be upon every beast. There's this idea of dominion even when Noah gets right out of the boat. The children of Israel, from Abraham all the way to Joshua, we see that God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to give you some land and it's going to be yours. And you're going to own it and it's a gift for you. He makes this promise to him in Genesis 15. And he tells him that, that this land that belongs to all these other people is going to belong to you. It became the promised land. Now, how did they get the promised land? Did God speak it into existence and they just walked over there and it was all fine? 
He said it was the promised land. He promised them they would have it, but he told them they had to go do what? They had to take it. They had to subdue it. They had to take what? They had to take dominion over that land. It's yours, but you got to go get it. Not only did he do this with Abraham, he did it again with Isaac in Genesis 26.3. You can read about it. He tells him, uh, go, and I'm going to give you this land. I will perform the oath that I swore unto you. He keeps giving them something to do. He's giving them a purpose. The purpose of their life is to take the promised land. He does the same thing to Jacob in Genesis 28. Behold, the Lord your God said, I am the Lord of Abraham, thy father of God of Isaac. And he said, I'm going to give all of this to you. He keeps repeating the promise. God keeps telling them what to do. We know Jacob becomes Israel. The promised land was described uh, in a more uh, revealed way in the book of Exodus when God doesn't just say this land. He defines it. He says it's going from this river to this shore. He explains it. He draws it out. This piece of real estate on planet earth is going to be yours. Now go get it. Moses takes them to the promised land. And the book of Joshua and the book of Judges is what? It's them going to the land and doing what? And taking the land. And he divides it up. He gives more revelation. He said this part's going to be for Judah. And this part's going to be for Dan. And this part's going to be for Asher. And this part's going to be for uh, you know, Naphtali. And so on and so forth. From Dan to Beersheba. Here's how it's going to be divided. And here's what you're going to do. And the story of Joshua is them doing the work of taking dominion over this piece of land. The women are talking about this in the Bible study that they have been doing. The book of Judges is an entire book about the same thing. Only now they have the land, but they have let the people live there and they're not obeying God. And God is saying, drive out the inhabitants of the land. Don't make peace with them. Don't make league with them. But do what? Take dominion over everything. Pretty important theme of the Bible. As we get to when Israel becomes a kingdom, they understand this and David sings about this and talks about it in Psalm 2. Starting in verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the degree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 72, our call to worship today. He said, He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass of the earth. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And so there was a prophecy where it wasn't just going to be one day they were going to have a little piece of land, but what was going to happen from the whole earth? We begin to see this in David's prophecy in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion in the midst of thine enemies. Zechariah the prophet prophesied, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, where the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. This constant theme of Scripture is that, that when Adam was given the rule over the world, and he got rid of it, and he, and he discarded it to go his own way, but this was what the work of God was going to do, would be to reclaim it, and to fix it, and to take it back. Again, Jesus Frame nearly every discussion with the kingdom of God. He comes as the king. Jesus takes Adam's place, writing what Adam messed up, and Jesus sets in motion to fix all of these things. And we come to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus talk about over and over and over? The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Here's what you need to do. You need to seek first the 
kingdom of God and all of His righteousness. Don't live like the Gentiles. What they're worried about is food and clothing and money and houses, but not you, not you, not you. You're going to be thinking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And then we all go, I'm so glad God me so I can have nice room. And so we can dress up and come to church on Sunday. Isn't that nice? And we find ourselves more like the children of Israel when they were obedient. We find ourselves more like those who are living in houses that we didn't build and living in reaping from vineyards that we didn't plant and forgetting what in the world that we came here for. We didn't come here for that. We came here and we're enjoying it because God lets us enjoy it. But when the joy of that supersedes the purpose that God has given us, then we will fail to fulfill what God's Word has said. We read this earlier. Do you remember what Jesus did after He ran the people out of the temple? He spoke to them two parables about work. I honestly hadn't prepared. I typed this during the offering real quick because I'm like, did you see what Jesus did? He comes in, Nathaniel. He, the triumphal entry, He runs them out. And he parables about what, Steve? About work. He said there were people that were said they would work but didn't work. There were people that said they wouldn't work but they did work. And then he said, and then there were this vineyard. He made this great work that all this work needed to be done and nobody would do it. And he said, and then they killed my son. I'm going to take this vineyard away from them. And I'm going to give it to someone who's willing to work. What did Jesus say? The harvest is plentier, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the field. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king. King of what? King of personal peace and happiness. King of, you know, drinking around the table in the shire. That only comes when you have conquered. And that day will come. And that's what we conquer it for. The great multitude spread their garments. They called him king. Twice in the New Testament, explicit comparison is made between Jesus and Adam. You can read about it in Romans chapter 5. Paul argues that just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so by the... Everybody say obedience. Obedience, obedience to do what? What was Adam told to do? Take dominion over the earth. Subdue it. Make a garden like I made for you. Make it a beautiful place to live. But he didn't do that. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's incredible dissertation on the power of the resurrection. And he ends his dissertation on the power of the resurrection explaining that because Christ is risen from the dead, that he is Adam. The second Adam. And what Adam didn't do in that he would not subdue the earth, that Jesus was coming king of the earth. 1 Corinthians 15, and so it was written, the first man, Adam, was a living soul, but the last Adam, a quickening spirit. Howbeit, it was not the first that was spiritual, but that which was natural, and afterward that which was spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly, but the second man is the Lord from heaven. And of course, Revelation, we know, ends with the idea that Jesus is king. So can you see, did I, did, did I walk through it fast enough to show you that this is a theme the Bible talks about from the beginning to the end? So what is this work that we're supposed to do? I don't know if Derek listened to our trajectory, but he included in his prayer the whole thing that we talked about. And the thing that we talked about is, yeah, we have work to do. 
What is the work of the church? What is it? How do we take dominion? I'm all for using your weed eater and I'm all for planting flowers and, and I'm all for growing food. I'm all about that. But what is the work that God has given us to do? Right after the resurrection, what did Jesus say? All power is given unto me. What's he saying? I'm king. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And for this reason, I've got some work I want you to do. What was the work that he said? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end. What is he saying? Go out and subdue the earth. Take it for me. It's all yours. It's not just a plot over there between the Mediterranean Ocean and the Dead Sea. It's not just that. It's not just that land over there between, you know, Syria and Egypt and all of those places. It's the whole world. And what I gave you as an example in the Old Testament for a little patch of ground is what I'm giving you as a people of God for a vision of what you're going to do for the whole earth. So are you winning the lost? Are you starting entire new lines of Christian families to the earth? Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? You know, I think it's funny, the strenuous efforts that we go to school our children, but we're not schooling them to be evangelists. We'll alter their entire schedule. We'll make them stay up late. We'll beat them into submission so that they can what? They can earn some money. So that they can do what? So they can live in a nice house. I'd be more inspired as a pastor if I heard you were making your children miserable. Trying to turn them into an evangelist. Trying to turn them into people that would go out and talk to their neighbors about Christ. That you filled your schedule not with more activities, but bringing people into your home and opening up the Word of God and discipling the nations like God says that we're supposed to do. But we don't do that. Somebody did it for you, but you don't do that. This is what Jesus said to do, but we don't do it. Building the church, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God's given us pastors and elders and deacons and, and members. And are we even building the church? Is that at the center of who you are? Or do you go, well, I, I go to church and, and I give some money to the church and I, I, I like to eat with church people and I like to have fun with church people. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prayed that the church might understand who they are. I don't have time to go through the entire book of Ephesians, but in the book of Ephesians, he talks about predestination. He talks about God's goodness and mercy. And he says, and I would pray that people would know who they are, that they would know that they're in Christ, who's putting all things under his feet. It comes right from the psalm that we're in today. What in the world? He's given us dominion to put all things under. He said, I wish you would know. Ephesians 2 said God saves us by His grace, but not only does He save us by His grace, that it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, but He saved us for work. It says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What are these good works that we don't, you know, chew tobacco? You know, that we don't go on the internet and look at things that we shouldn't look at? 
We spend so much of our times about what we're not supposed to do, and we spend our lives so much focused on how we can earn money and how we can have clothes and how we can have food that we never think about the work of the kingdom when Jesus expressly said, do not live like the Gentiles live, but yet we do. That's what we do. That's what 90%, 95% of our time is spent doing. I'm sorry to work you over today, but it's my job. I'm doing my work today. I'm plowing in my field today. This is what God's word says, and we're going to talk about it. I'm not done. He came and preached peace to you that were far off and them that were nigh. For through them, this is in Ephesians. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers, but you are foreigners, fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God. You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom the building is fitly framed together, it grows to a holy temple of the Lord. Who is doing this work? Is this the work that your life is about? In whom also you are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Ephesians 4, Paul begins by calling on these people to walk worthy of the work that they've been called to do. The King James word is the vocation. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. To what? Unity in the church. Meekness, lowliness. For what reason? So we can build the church. For what? Because the church is going to redeem mankind. Ephesians 4. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. That's what I'm trying to do from the pulpit. That's what I try to do when I talk to you about your life. That's what I try to do when we're, we're trying to uh, help you look at God's Word and see, is, is your life centered? It's my job to perfect the saints. For what? It says in verse 12, for the work. Everybody say, for the work. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The officers... Dominion work is to mature believers so that they can do the work of the ministry. Not to mature them so that they have happy lives, so that they don't end up in jail, so they don't end up uh, you know, an embarrassment to the church because they're ungodly and they're living like the world. That's not what it's for. And I hope that none of that happens. But if your goal is like my cousin's was, he said, he offered his daughters, if you're not pregnant, by the time you leave high school, I'm going to buy you a car. And that was his goal for them and you know what i can laugh at that and i have laughed at that but i'm not laughing today at our lack of goals our lack of drive our lack of uh understanding that we have been given a work to do we sort of walk around like we're not doing anything when do we do this till we all come in the unity of the faith under the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. And the question is, is, are you doing this? Are you taking dominion through building the church? Are you working for unity? This isn't just the pastor's job. Is it even something that you think about? Are you anxious about it? And I'm not trying to beat up on you, Josh, but you know what it's like to be anxious to say, how can I provide for my family, right? Oh, Lord, give me a job. I want something to do. I want to be able to earn money. There's nothing wrong with that. But would be to God that the level of anxiety that comes with what is it that I can do to earn money for my family, if we would say, how are the lost getting reached? 
How is the kingdom of God being built? What am I doing to preserve the peace and the purity and the unity of church? What am I doing to build something in the future that will last that is going to take dominion over the earth and do the very thing that God has called me to do? We don't worry. We don't fret about it at all. Having children, raising them to be godly is, is a big part of how we work together taking dominion. Merely having children is not enough. Teaching them to obey God's command is what He says we're to do. Are you raising future elders, deacons, evangelists, church unifiers, people that build up the body of Christ? Are you doing dominion work or are you raising good children who can excel at making money or buying a nice house? And if that's all that you're doing, you're not fulfilling your God-directed purpose. In the words of Jesus, after these things do the Gentiles seek, but not you. Seek ye first the... People say, well, I'm not really sure about what that means. I'm not sure. I wish we'd be, I wish we'd be worried about that. I wish we'd be thinking about that. Well, what does it mean? Am I really doing that? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God? Or am I just trying to be left alone and enjoy my life and be a part of a little church? I know this is pretty heavy for a Palm Sunday, but it's right here. You can't go to the scriptures and look at this subject and not be driven to the asking yourself, are we doing what God has given us here to do? And I talked to the, the kids at Trajectory, and I was so proud that, uh, you know, I, the reason I wanted to get admissions to begin with isn't to build my life around something that's going on 8,500 miles away. It's because I wanted to go to a place where people were coming to Christ because they're not coming here. Are we bringing people off the streets? Are they coming to the Lord? Are we filling our church with people who don't know the Lord, who we can disciple? We are not doing that. And we need to do that. And we can't complain that we're going 8,500 miles away to go do it if we're not doing it here. And so my goal isn't to get all of us to pack up and go to Myanmar. We may stop even supporting the work in Myanmar. That's not our life. We've been called to do it here. And what is happening in the lives of my children and in some of the other kids that have gotten involved in this, some of them have gotten excited and said, you know what, we saw this in Myanmar, we want to see it here. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I prayed would happen. It's happening. As parents, how are you encouraging that? As moms and dad, how are you structuring your life to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's the question I believe that God wants us to ask ourselves today. It's not to beat you up and make you feel bad about yourself. It's to say, come on, am I doing what God has given me to do? Am I seeking the kingdom? Am I a part of what Christ said that he wanted us to do? Is that the center of my life or is that something that I do in my spare time? Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who is set by glory above the heavens. We believe God's great. We don't need any convincing, right? He's excellent. His name is excellent. But what do you think God wants? What do you want? Would you, would you like your wife to say you're excellent and talk about your excellence? Or would you rather she believed it and she lived by it? 
Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. For thou made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. You see, the praise of Psalm 8 is saying we're praising God. And the way that we praise God is by doing what God has given us to do. Every work that we do either praises God or exalts a truth that isn't so. Is the kingdom of God, is our worship of God, is it at the center of our lives? And if it's not, by the grace of God, may we learn to live as it is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so in our lives today, people of God. Let us pray. Lord, I really hadn't expected to get so worked up this morning, and I hope it doesn't seem somehow it's a personal thing as if I'm frustrated and angry. Because if I am frustrated and angry, it is that I have done a poor job of leading our congregation to do these things, not that they are not doing them as much. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, that we would hear you speaking to us and admonishing us and helping us to rethink our priorities, Lord. Help us to think about, are we really thinking about you and your kingdom first before we think of other things? Or is our life mainly spent thinking about ourselves? Where is our treasure, the treasure of our time and our money? Where is it going? Is it going to your work and the kingdom or is it going to build up a kingdom that will pass away like all the others? Oh, Lord God, may I not build one day on the kingdom of Robinette, the kingdom that will pass away and be gone, for your name is above every name. Lord, may we build on King Jesus, on the kingdom that you established, on the church that you are building. May we disciple the nations and teach and lead them, Lord, to the throne where all the world will one day come as the water flows from the east and the west. Lord, may the earth flow to you, Lord. May we begin to flow to you now. May we come to your throne and say, Lord, what would you have us to do today? In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.